0: So this morning, I have the awesome privilege, again, of opening the Bible with you, but we're also going to open it with a a new series. We're going to spend some time for the next, actually, four months together, maybe six, I don't know how long this is going to take, on the book of Thessalonians, and we've entitled this series, "Unshakable Hope, and I just want to share maybe two reasons why I thought it appropriate to um, enter the book of Thessalonians for this fall season. The book of Thessalonians is actually an Advent book, and when you think of the word Advent, you often think about the coming of Christ, the first coming, and we celebrate Advent in the four weeks before Jesus' birth, uh, December 25th, so the first four Sundays before that. And for the last 500 years, every single time we used the word Advent in the church, it was always connected to the incarnation, and that's fine. But before that, and in the early church, and when Paul was writing this letter, when they talked about the advent of Christ, they were thinking about the second coming, about the return of Christ. And so both of those are important, but this book deals with the second coming. And I just love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about the advent, whether it's the first coming of Christ, which we celebrate on Christmas Day, or the longing to see Christ return on the clouds of heaven, this is what... Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he says, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. And I wonder this morning if that defines you, that you're looking forward to something greater to come. And that great one to come, I'm being told i got to stay constrained. It's so hard. But I will. Thank you, Mark. That someone greater to come is Christ. That's one reason I I, I chose this book, because we're entering, you could say, into the fall advent, into the season that we wait for the coming of Christ. But here's the other reason I've chosen this book, and it's found in this name, or in title, Unshakable Hope. We live in difficult times, I think you would agree with me, where the foundations of our hope in this world are being shaken. This is worldwide, those foundations that they used to think were secure, maybe in their government or maybe in economics, maybe in healthcare, all of those things have shown that to be, to be unsafe to build our foundation upon, which I think is really beautiful actually, but has come through great trial. Like yesterday we commemorated the 9 the 11, the, the, the death of 3,000 people in, 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 the, in the Twin Towers. What a devastating story. So many people still broken, losing family members because of, because of that act of terrorism. And, and since the 2000s, we've had tsunamis and we've had fires, we've had earthquakes, we have riots, we had so much violence in this world. And then just to shake our vulnerability and make us even more vulnerable, in 2020, we had COVID-19. And it's still with us today. If it's proven us nothing, it's proven us this, that we are very vulnerable even in the West, that we cannot put our hope in the things of men or women. I met a guy last week Sunday who listened to me preach, and after the service he came to me with tears in his eyes. He said, I had not been in church for 23 years. He said, I was born in a Catholic home and my parents had me baptized, but they did not invest in my spiritual life. Listen to me, parents, and you as well. That's your first and primary calling to invest in the spiritual life of your children. And, and that never happened. And so for 23 years or whatever, he's been adrift. And he said, I had to come back to church. Why? Because I need to make sense of this world. And the only way, the only way you're going to make sense of this world is under the preaching of the gospel. It's only in connection with Christ can you find hope for tomorrow. And that's why it's unshakable. The people of Thessalonica were persecuted. The people of Thessalonica were pressed. They lost their homes. They were were broken because they lifted the name of Jesus when they should have been lifting the name of Caesar. And family would disband and say, we don't have anything to do with you. And they lost property. They would lose work. Paul says they were intensely suffering because of the gospel. But they had, he realized, unshakable hope. And maybe the persecution is not as intense in in our context right now, but we are being marginalized, and our voice in the public square is being silenced. You Christians may as well just go home. We don't want to hear from you and from your God, they say. And in the face of an uncertain tomorrow, in a face where all the foundations seem to be shaking, in the reality that when we stand for Jesus, we might be persecuted, we need this unshakable hope. In the person of Jesus Christ. So, just give you a bit of context then to what's happening here. Paul's writing this letter to the Thessalonians who live in Thessalonia, or Thessalonians who live in Thessalonica. It's a it's a city still today, in uh, in Macedonia. Now it's in Greece. Back then, two thousand years ago, it was um, about two hundred thousand people. Today, we'll just show a picture of the city right now. It's about um, eight hundred thousand people. Same city, just growing in size. There was a highway that ran through the city that made it a very important city, and that's why it was the capital of Macedonia. It's no longer the capital of Greece, though I think it's the second largest city in Greece. You can quote me on—don't quote me on that. <laughs> you can check it later. But there was, it was called the Via Egnatia. Here's a picture of the Via Egnatia. Um, it was a thoroughway. It was a major highway. And you're like, really? Yeah, but that's all they needed back then. They didn't need 25,000 lanes to tr- commute people. But that was the Via Egnatia. It connected the two important seas, the Aegean Sea and the, um, i got to find it here, and the other sea, there you go, and the Adriatic Sea, there we go. That's my geography lesson for today. But Paul wrote this letter to them after, after intense suffering himself. You see, when Paul was in Asia Minor, which I think we can get a map here just of, of where he was, when Paul was in Troas, you see Troas on the map, kids? Kids, can you see Troas? I mean, I'm like, I can't read, Pastor. I'm like, tell your ask your parents. You know, yeah, you can see it. I know you can see it. Listen, Troas is where he was. And he was trying to get into Galatia, up towards the right. But the, the devil seemed to be stopping him, and he was discouraged. But one night, he had a man from Philippi, looked like a man from Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, calling him over to Macedonia. So the next day, he boards a ship with Silas. This is his second missionary journey, and he gets to Philippi. He sees some awesome conversions. He's thrown into prison. He's beaten. He sees a household baptism. He leaves there. And finally, he ends up in Thessalonica, and he spends some time there, but not very long at all maybe months, and God does an awesome work in that church, in that city, in just months. Amazing, amazing work. This is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. So we're just going to read about that um, as we open our Bibles this morning to Acts 17. So Acts 17, is the book of Acts, is the storyline of the missionaries as they traveled through and they shared the gospel. I'm probably moving outside the... Yeah, I yeah, got some thumbs up and thumbs down over there. Um, As they traveled through in their missionary journey, so here we go, Acts 17. This is when Paul reaches Thessalonica. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Then Jesus... Sorry, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Now, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, it's pretty impressive, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And when they made Jason and the other opposed Others post let They let them go. As soon as it was light, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But here's the kicker. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible." So that gives you a bit of context to the, to the community, to the city of Thessalonica, um, to the opposition that they faced, and now we're going to enter the actual book that we're going to study, also in our small groups, this fall, and that's 1 Thessalonians. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 1, the, just the first three verses. Paul Sidus and Timothy to the Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, continually mentioning you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Such beautiful words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him for a blessing over that word. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can open your word now. Bless our hearts as we listen. Let your spirit do an awesome work in our lives, transforming us and making us more like Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the theme for the Sermon series is this unshakable hope. But you have to understand that our unshakable hope has to be rooted. And it has to be rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to run right through the whole series as I talk about this unshakable hope. It's rooted in someone, and his name is Jesus. But for us to be rooted in Christ... You know, the Spirit is actually working in us to make us like Christ. There's this Christ-shaped reality that comes to play when we are rooted in Christ. It shapes our lives. It should. Our lives should, having been rooted in Christ, begin to look more like Christ's life. And our desires should be more like Christ's desires. That's, that's proof that, that we are rooted in Christ and that the spirit of Christ is living in us. And I'll tell you something, as a missionary, as a former missionary, but also as a pastor, nothing gives us more joy, and as leaders of this church as well, nothing gives us more joy than watching members mature and become more like Christ. And nothing makes us more sad and drives us to our knees more often than when we see members become more like this world or more like the devil and not like Christ. Paul, Paul's watching a church become shaped like Christ. It's a Christ-likeness that he delights in. And so there's three things about a Christ-likeness that I want to talk to you about this morning. Shaped, a Christ-shaped life. There's three things that you need to know about a Christ-shaped life. The first one is that it's a connected life. You cannot live a Christ-shaped life disconnected from God. Disconnected from Christ. Disconnected from the triune God. It's a praiseworthy life that others will, will give, give reason for praise when they see your life shaped by Christ. It, it, it's, it's reason for so much thanksgiving. And finally, it's a fruitful life. A life shaped by Christ is a fruitful life, and we're going to look at faith, hope, and life, and, and love. And, and I know that the, the, the kids' uh, program is a little bit different. Their, their theme is a united to Christ, praiseworthy witness, and faith, love, and hope. Kids, forgive me, I did change that a little bit, but it's almost the same. There you go. So let's begin with, it's a connected life. You are united to Christ and his father by the Holy Spirit. This is the connection. Paul begins here. He says, Paul, Sidus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to get back to that little word in shortly. But what I love about this letter as I've been able to work with it and I sent out an email to to many of you. I hope you've read it about how much I love this letter already. But what I love about this letter is that it's actually Paul, they think, Paul's first letter. His first opportunity at writing to a church. And and, and what drove him to write this letter initially was, was fear. Or what drove him to kind of send Timothy over to, we'll find out about this, to the church because he feared something. He feared that maybe his labors were in vain. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Paul wanted to know how they were doing because he was a bit worried about them. Were they united to Christ? And so, what do you do? Chapter 3, verse 2, he says, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in the faith. So I don't know how things are going here in Thessalonica, but I'm going to send Timothy to just check it out and encourage you. And he was worried. What will Timothy say when he comes back? He didn't have to worry long. Timothy came back, and this is what Timothy says in 1, 3, verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. And that made Paul's heart sing. The gospel he didn't realize I landed on fertile soil. They were not driven to despair because of persecution. They were not driven from Christ. They were driven to Christ. And Paul writes this letter to encourage them. And Paul writes this letter to celebrate what they have in Christ. So he writes to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. You know, one of Paul's favorite words, I think, after the name of Christ, is the little word in. Do you know that? He is the apostle that always uses that little preposition in, constantly, in Christ, in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus, in God, in Christ, in the Father. Why? Well, what does it mean to be in God? You know, God is, is, is a spirit, so how do, you, how do you enter into the Godhead, you could ask? It's different than entering into this building. You are in this building right now. I hope you know that. <laughs> Become counseling afterwards if you don't realize you're in this building right now. But how do you become in God, in the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ? I want to tell you this morning that this reality, just as you are now sitting in front of me in this building, that reality is no less real to be in God right now. That's how real it is. And that's why Paul can say, right to the letter, to this letter to the church, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It means this that as believers, of God and of Christ. God belongs to us and we belong to him and there's this inseparable connection. We are united to him. And what it does is identify us. How do you identify yourself? What's the best cue of identification that you have biologically? Well, for the longest time, it was your thumbprint. But now it's moved on to the retina, I think, and I don't want to discuss what's more clear as an identification of who you are personally. Your, 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 thumbprint is a pretty, or your fingerprint is a pretty good one. You know what's amazing about a fingerprint now? I still have an iPhone 8. I don't know if other phones use the retina thing, but whatever. Probably do. I didn't check. But when I went to record my, 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 my identity to my phone on the home button, it took three times for it to take a picture of my thumb. I don't think it's because my thumb is particularly large, Maybe it is. I don't know. I've never compared it with other people's thumbs. But I think it just took three times for my thumb to be recorded in my home button so that now when I push my thumb on this thing, it just opens up everything. Opens up my passwords, open my bank accounts, everything. It's just opened up by my thumb after three times. I thought about that a little bit. Our identity personally is connected to the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, we will learn later even today, this morning, not today, don't worry. God the Father has adopted us as his children. That's on our thumbprint, you could say. The Son of God has, has, sealed, has, has cleansed us by his blood and brought us into relationship with the Father. That's the work of the Son. Also, you could say on your thumbprint. And the third work of God is the work of the Holy Spirit who works in our hearts, who seals us, who brings us into this awesome relationship with Christ and confirms it as an eternal inheritance. Three persons of the Trinity identify you. And so Paul says, listen, to the church of Thessalonica, you are a church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and you could add by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the identity that we have in Christ That's what separates us from those who do not belong to Christ. We are in, you could say, in the Godhead in this awesome way, this mystical way. And as you are collectively, as you are as a congregation, so you are individually. As you believe in Jesus Christ, you are identified as a follower, as a Christian, as someone rooted in Jesus and that's foundational. That is so foundational for a life that you want to have shaped by Jesus Christ. you got to be in Him. You have to believe in Him. You have to surrender your life to Him. You have to know that He calls you His own, that you are His child. That's the first point. Here's the second. Sorry, I'm jumping on here. In a praiseworthy life, gives reason for prayers of thanksgiving. So Paul moves on. He says, now you're connected to the Godhead in this beautiful way as a church. This gives me so much reason for praise. And I would say amen to you, Paul. That is so true. Paul says, we always thank God for all of you, in verse 2, and continually mention you in our prayers. He says, your faith, being united to Christ, so enriched my soul. I, I, I can't help but say thank you to God. Daily. You know, as as we left Papua New Guinea, we had reasons to celebrate. We, my wife and I, when we left Papua New Guinea, there was this go away. We had a number of go away gatherings, and people would share beautiful things about the ministry and how you know they were shaped by the gospel and how the gospel changed their lives and brought them from darkness to life, from marriages that were dissolving to marriages that were strong, from alcohol abuse, drug abuse to to living free. And we heard so many beautiful stories, and, and it just it just brings so much joy to my heart. But But when we left, there were stories that broke our hearts too. We couldn't say those words. We thank God. Always mention your prayer because you're united to Christ. We couldn't say that because because they weren't. What they did after, some of them, after living with, after ministering to them for 12 years, what they did was depart from Christ. They had lived the game. They had lived this kind of, this this hype, this, this life of, hypocritical life where they, they, they came to church every Sunday. They were under my preaching and the preaching of the national pastors for 12 years, but they knew nothing of Jesus. Their life was not changed. There was no shaping of Christ in them. They were still turning to evil, turning to the sins of this world. Nothing was different after 12 years. It's hard to pray with thanksgiving when you watch that happen. But it's not hard to pray with thanksgiving when you see Christ at work in people's lives. It's a reason for thanks. Paul says, I constantly mention you in my prayers. Always. And what am I doing? I'm just thanking God. That's all I'm doing. Thank you, God, for mercy. Thank you, God, for the people here. Thank you for those hearts that are turned to you. Thank you for the lives that they are living and the gospel they're sharing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But you know what my problem is? I'll be very, very honest with you. Often I I focus on the few who are not living gospel-shaped lives, who are not engaged in the gospel, who have a side gig, and it's all sin. And of course, I need to pray for you if you're in that, in that situation. And, and I, and I, and I, but often, I, 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 don't, I, I fail to thank God, and I, I move into the negative. I move into the things that need to be different. Even in my own life, I don't thank God very often. I'm just like, God, this is a problem. How often are you thanking God for your family of Christ, for those who are following Christ, just celebrating that God is doing a work in their life. And I want to encourage you this morning to be that person who thanks God for what He's doing. It brings so much joy, it brings such a bounce in your step. You know, when Paul was entering into Corinth, I believe that Paul was very discouraged. Very discouraged. He had left Thessalonica on, on, a, for, on, a, on a case where there was a bond being put out basically to say, he's out of here or this is gonna, you're going to be in prison. So he left. He went on to Berea, he was like, this is awesome. He's preaching the gospel, and bang, Thessalonians come, and they drive him out. He gets to Antioch, sorry, yeah, Antioch, no, Athens, we'll pick another city. He gets to Athens, and and he preaches the gospel, and then some mock him. And so he goes, he kind of says, like a dog with his tail down, into Corinth, thinking that maybe his ministry had failed, Maybe that he had just poured out his heart like a drink offering, and yet there was no nothing to prove. <laughs> and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3: I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Why was he weak? Because he probably felt that his ministry had failed. And then he gets this word from Timothy that God was at work in Thessalonica unbelievably. He was there maybe for a few months. We don't even know if it's more than a month. And God, out of the power of his Holy Spirit, builds this strong church. That he, He doesn't have any discouraging words to them. He just encourages and encourages and encourages them because he's so thankful for what the Holy Spirit is doing in Corinth. He thought it was all a failure, or in Thessalonica. He thought the whole thing was a was a gong show because of the power of the, of the devil and because of all the evilsayers and those who are opposing the church. And in the midst of those ashes, Christ was building a strong church. Never undermine the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is so strong that he doesn't even need us to do an awesome work. That's what happened in Thessalonica. And Paul says this is reason for so much Praise. Well, this brings us to, me to the third point and final point. It's a connected life. It's united to Christ. This is a Christ-shaped life. It's connected to Christ. It's worthy of praise. Not to our praise, but praise to God. It's a fruitful life. That if you're connected to Christ, you will bear fruit. And you're going to bear fruit that looks like a lot like hope and faith and love. Let me just unpack those briefly with you this morning. Thank you, Caden, for your patience. He's a good boy already, I can tell. Faith. He says this, he says, "We remember before God and Father your work produced by faith." Faith works. Does that ring a bell? It's the work of faith, literally. What's he saying? He's saying this, that faith when it's at work, it, it produces something. A living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is, it produces a good work. In fact, it produces a lot of good works. And Just so you know, because we live in this kind of therapeutic deism age where it's, or expressive individualism, it's all about me. Just so you know, Paul is not thankful that they have faith in themselves. He's not talking about the self here. It's not Paul saying, well, I'm, I, I just thank God for the faith that you have in yourself and, and how, how you show your faith by, by the good things that you do. No, he's not building their ego and saying since they had enough faith in themselves, they're doing a lot of good things. No, that's not the Christian faith. No, the Christian faith is abandon self-trust and trust, your, and trust your life to Christ. So he sees their work of faith and he's celebrating that they are, they're, they're doing a work of faith that's rooted rooted in Christ. Maybe, maybe here are some things that they're doing. I don't know. Maybe they're just staying the course. Just staying the course. Just walking that walk of faith. Maybe, they, maybe they're not denying Jesus under, under the strain of ridicule. Maybe their husband or their wife is making fun of them, but they're just saying, "No, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm sticking with Jesus. Thank you very much. Maybe, maybe their boss is saying, if you don't worship Caesar today, you're going to lose your job. I'm like, I'm going to lose my job. Maybe it's them just not being ashamed of of Jesus' name in the marketplace. Maybe they took opportunities to share the good news. I think they did because we'll find out about that later. But in the face of all this opposition, their their faith was unshakable. And I'm going to ask you, what makes a faith so unshakable, so willing to stand up that it actually begins to produce fruit? A faith that produces fruit believes that what happened on this cross made all the difference for them. A faith that produces fruit always looks back and builds upon the foundation of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. When Paul went out to preach the gospel, he always preached Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because that's the foundation of your faith. If you want a faith that's going to bear fruit, you better be believing that Jesus died for you on the cross and rose again. It's a historical fact. And it changes everything. Work produced by faith. It's a life shaped by the power of the gospel. Here Paul continues says, And your labor prompted by love. You can't live a life shaped by Christ if this virtue of love is not in the center of your life. Paul wants to drive this point home many times, so he does it again in 1 Corinthians. You know the text, many of you. 1 Corinthians 13 but he, he drives it home in 1 Corinthians 13 by showing that actually the zenith, the highest point, the pinnacle of the Christian life is defined by love, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Children, some of you know the song. You can finish the line for me. They will know we are Christians by our love. I'm going to hear it one more time. They will know we are Christians by our one more time, children. They, not adults. I don't want to hear any adults. So if you're under 18, you can say it. They will know we are Christians by our love. Amen. They will know we are Christians by our love. It's so defining of our Christian faith that at his absence, there is no identity with Christ. If, you, if love is absent from your life, if you're not loving your spouse, loving your children, loving those around you, loving your workmates, loving the people in the church, sharing concern for them, giving your life to serve them, et cetera, et cetera. If that's not part of your Christian identity, you are not a Christian. John says, we love because he first loved us. We have to love because He first loved us. It has to define our life at home with our family. Has to define our life at work, even when things get stressful at work. Has to define our life at church, even with members of the church that you don't really, really like. Still got to love them. Has to define our life in our neighborhood. It's a labor. Prompted by love. It's a sacrificial love that puts the needs of others before our own. It's sacrificial. Why? Because Jesus sacrificed his life. It's his agape love on the cross for you so that you would know what to do when you need to love other people. Here's the example it's going to be marked by kindness, it's going to be marked by thoughtfulness, it's going to be marked by putting the needs of others before your own, it's going to have your eyes open to the broken, to the hurting, to the lost. It's going to start here in the household of faith and then stretch into the community that we belong in here in McQueston and then into your own neighborhoods if you have not yet moved into McQuesten. Had to say it once. But finally there's hope. He's like, okay, I want to get to hope. I want to get to hope. I'm going to get to hope right now. I love hope. He says, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh. So beautiful. John Stott is a, was, a, was a theologian from the, from the Anglican tradition in, in England. He has since passed away. John Stott put it like this. He says, faith rests on the past. I pointed to the cross. Love works in the present, that you share that love presently. And hope looks to the future. Every Christian without exception is a believer, a lover, and a hoper. Faith, hope, and love are three sure evidences of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in your life. And, and that's John Scott. Here is Charles Spurgeon. Just pick another Englishman. Faith goes up the stairs that love has built and looks out the window which hope has opened. Think about that today. You can't separate faith, hope, and love. What is this hope? What's well, hope in the promise that God, in God that he will make all things new. It's hope in the promise that Christ will return one day to redeem this world. To remove sin and death and pain and suffering and sadness and sickness. It's hope that tomorrow is securely in the hands of the Almighty so that you can embrace tomorrow with confidence. That's hope. Regardless of what government comes into power, regardless of the state of economy or, economy or the housing market or whatever, we do not put our hope in the things of this world. Hope is also not wishful thinking. It's not like, I, I don't know if it's going to happen, but, but I hope it happens. That's not hope that we're talking about here. That's absolutely not what Christian hope is all about. Hope is captured in the finished work of Christ. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's hope. If he's done this and put his son on the cross for our sins and, and he's promised an inheritance because of that work, how will he not give us all things because of that? He didn't spare his son. You think he's going to spare his riches to you? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. Listen, if you put your hope in the sovereign Lord Jesus and in his grace and not in your own strength or in the approval of others or in money or the fleeting power, fleeting pleasures of sin and stuff, if you do this, if you put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, when everything seems to evaporate around you, maybe you're not receiving any acclamation, or any support, or kind of applause from people around you, even though you're serving the Lord diligently. Maybe the glamour of self-denial has evaporated. You've denied yourself. A few people have noticed your service. You're getting some praise back, and it's kind of inspiring you. Maybe when that's all evaporated, Maybe when you feel that your plans are falling apart and you can't make sense of what's going to happen tomorrow, then you shall endure. Little word in there is extremely important, the endurance of hope. Your endurance inspired by hope. It's this patient endurance that I know Christ will fulfill his purpose. He will turn to good all that he has sent me in this life of sorrow. I know his will will be done and I will trust him because he is king and Lord of my life. That's hope. And I hope and I hope and I hope you have hope. Loved ones, the reason why hope endures, the reason why faith works, and the reason why I love produces awesome fruit because these were all possessed by our Savior. He is the pioneer of our faith. I hope you know that. He had an undoubted, undying, denying faith in the Lord, his Father. He was unwavering in his hope. He knew that once he went to the cross, that after the cross, he would see his offspring. He knew that after the cross, he would rise again. He had hope in the promise of God. For his own resurrection, he knew that his body would not see decay, as we read in Psalm sixteen. And love—if Christ had faith and hope—you need to understand this morning that Christ is love, and that that His love with, with covers. You know, Christ's love covered in the flesh. He was just this walking balm of love. That's who Christ was. Everything about Christ's love falls under the greater category of love. That's why you are saved. That's why he died. That's why even while he was dying, he was asking God to forgive those who did not know what they were doing. As they were nailing him to the cross, that's love. Faith hope and love all rooted in the Godhead comes to us as we are united to Christ by faith that these become our virtues our cardinal virtues our essential virtues so that when we are shaped by Christ these things ought to be growing we should be growing in faith growing in love and growing in the hope and the greatest of these will be love this is the gospel of Jesus Christ this is a life shaped by Christ for God's glory let us pray Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for a gospel that's so rich and so beautiful. Lord, we want to have gospel-shaped lives. We want to have Christ-shaped lives. We're sick and tired of our own selfish pursuits. We're sick and tired of the pride and the malice and the envy and the greed that lives within our hearts. We want to become more like Christ. And so we're praying this morning, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, renew in us a Christ-likeness that causes other people to thank you that produces in us greater fruit, that we walk in greater confidence of faith, that we share, we share a greater hope in the resurrection and the life to come, and that we show the love of Christ to everyone, even those we don't like. Lord, make us like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.